So the fact that this vaccine with these ties is being marketed specifically to developing countries, and that's the focus of these eugenicist-linked people's research for decades, I mean, uh, it makes you kind of wonder. You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome back, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com, in a conversation that is being recorded on the 24th of February, 2021. And if you are a viewer of The Corbett Report, you no doubt already know, to some extent, something about the COVID-19 vaccines, which immediately people will interject, it's not a vaccine, it's experimental gene therapy. Well, yes, depending on which of the vaccines you're talking about. And that's part of the problem, is that it may be confusing, but I think it behooves us to know that there are different varieties of COVID-19 vaccines that are being uh, forced upon the public by different manufacturers, each with their own different agreements, depending on different countries and how these are being distributed, etc., etc., that are working via different mechanisms. They're not all mRNA technology. One example, of course, as I hope people know by now, is the Oxford-AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine, which is not an mRNA injection. It is operating in a different way, and I think it is important to know a little bit about that and to know about this Oxford-AstraZeneca partnership, what it is, where it comes from, who are the people behind this vaccine, and what does that tell us about what this may actually be aiming at? Well, luckily for you guys out there, I have a guest who knows a thing or two about that on today to help explain this. That's Whitney Webb of UnlimitedHangout.com, which I trust that my listeners already know by now, but if not, of course, I'll link it up in the show notes, along with what I am happy to note is the most detailed report I have seen yet on the background of Klaus Schwab, Schwab Family Values by Johnny Vedmore up on UnlimitedHangout.com, which goes as far as anyone or further than anyone I've seen into the background of Schwab, which I am saddened to note is still not very far. <laughs> There's still so much about this man in his background that we still don't know, but I will at least commend that article to their attention. And specifically today, we're going to be focusing on an article that uh, Whitney Webb co-authored with Jer uh, Jeremy Lafredo back in December of 2020 called Developers of Oxford AstraZeneca Vaccine Tied to UK Eugenics Movement. And like all of Whitney Webb's articles or co-authored articles, this one is voluminous and very detailed, so we will only scrape the surface today. I hope people will actually go and read the article itself. Having said that, let's bring her on. Whitney Webb, thank you for joining us today. Hey, absolutely. It's great to be here. All right. Uh, there's so many different things to go over with regards to this article, but I guess let's just start with that groundwork of the fact that not all COVID-19 vaccines are the same. They are different and operate on different principles. And as I say, the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine is not an mRNA shot. Tell us a little bit about the mechanism that this particular vaccine is employing. So this vaccine uses what uh, they describe as a chimpanzee adenovirus vector that they engineered to express the spike protein of COVID-19. And it was heavily promoted in, in contrast to the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, mainly because it doesn't have such complicated storage requirements, this cold supply chain. So it was being promoted basically as the vaccine of choice for developing countries because it doesn't require that type of logistical um, infrastructure. And that's actually why uh, the Gabby Vaccine Alliance has partnered with, uh, uh, you know, this partnership uh, to distribute uh, this particular vaccine to developing countries. Um, and uh, I don't know exactly how much detail you want me to go into the the um, 
like uh, mechanics of the, you know, the vaccine itself. But, you know, it's not, um, you know, as experimental, I guess you could say, as perhaps uh, Moderna and Pfizer's, which has never been licensed for use in humans before. But it it is still experimental to a degree. And they had previously developed, uh, used the same vector for, I think, a MERS uh, vaccine, but of course that was never put on the market either. But they've, you know, been a- fiddling with this uh, particular, uh, you know, mechanism for for a few years. Yes, and so it is important to stress. Yes, this is a genetically modified chimpanzee adenovirus that they use as a vector mm-hmm. to get into, invade your cells, and then start producing the spike protein. So similar, I suppose, in the sense uh, to the mRNA, the ultimate part uh, idea of this is to express that spike protein in order to stimulate the immune response. But it's a different way of doing it. And it is important to note that, as you say, it has at least been tried in humans before, unlike the mRNA experimental injections. But um, I I, I do bring that up because there are a number of implications of this, one of which, as you say, is that it doesn't require the cold storage that Pfizer or Moderna does. So it, it, uh, as you say, this is the perfect uh, vaccine to give to the world at large, the poor developing countries, the poor brown people around the world that obviously these big pharma manufacturers care so much about. And uh, this will be, and not only that, it will also be distributed in a not-for-profit way. These companies aren't even, or Oxford AstraZeneca isn't even trying to make profit on it. As you point out, even the quote-unquote independent media, like your former employers over at Mint Press News, successful not-for-profit Oxford COVID vaccine threatens big pharma profit logic. Oh, yay! But that's not quite the story here, is it? Tell us about this not-for-profit cover for this Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Right. So that myth of the not per, for uh, uh, profit ethos of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine ignores the commercialized arm of the Oxford uh, Jenner Va- Institute, which produced this vaccine and you know has some of the royalties on it. A lot of those royalties and the patents on the technology are actually held by a private company uh, by the two developers of the AstraZeneca or the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine that's called Vaxitech. And Vaxitech... Um, their investors include Bravos Capital, set up by the former uh, top Deutsche Bank executive in England for equity trading during the 2008 economic crisis. It includes Google Ventures. It includes uh, the Wellcome Trust and also the UK government, all of whom stand to make some profit from that. It is true that um, the producers of the vaccine are going to get less, a small percentage of royalties currently until the pandemic is declared over. But once the pandemic is declared over and this you know, COVID-19 vaccination is, is set to become an annual event in subsequent uh, generations of the COVID-19 vaccine, this company, Vaxitech, is expected to drive uh, the second generation of COVID vaccines and expect to make a huge windfall of profits. And they've said this, that Vaxitech has been really open about this to their shareholders. So it's pretty amazing that even in the independent media, you know, that the Vax attack doesn't even get uh, hardly even a mention, uh, especially when you have people like Google and former Deutsche Bank executives um, essentially bankrolling them um, and standing to profit from the vaccine. And Google's ties to this um, are particularly significant because you have YouTube clamping down on COVID-19 vaccine misinformation um, at the same time that they, their venture capital arm has a stake in one of the vaccines. Exactly right. Okay, this is the point, par, uh, the part at which I think a, 
an infographic would be handy because there are a lot of different organizations here. But just on that note, before we move on, I will note that I did I did write about this in my Year Ahead Part 2 Biosecurity editorial from uh, January of this year, where I said that uh, one of the potential endpoints of the pandemic is June. Why June? Because that's when AstraZeneca says so. Uh, the deals uh, that the various big pharma drug pushers have made with governments around the world are by and large secret, of course, because that's how the fascist corporate global cacistocracy rolls. But according to at least one such agreement that has been seen, but not shared, by the good old Financial Times, the document actually declares that the scamdemic will end on July 1st, 2021, unless, quote, AstraZeneca, acting in good faith, considers that the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic is not over. And I write, read the report for the details, but in a nutshell, AstraZeneca has agreed not to profit from their COVID vaccine until the pandemic is over, so they've had it written into their contracts that they get to declare the scandemic over by July. So uh, that's just one of the, the different rabbit holes here. So clearly there is some obfuscation of the actual profit motive that really is at play here, despite what you might be told, even in the quasi-independent media. But let's let's hone in on these different groups. I mean, you've just rattled out some names. How are these groups connected? We have Oxford, AstraZeneca, which itself is some sort of uh, agglomeration. And then there's there's the Vaxitech, there's the Wellcome Trust, there's Gavi, there's the Jenner Institute. Walk uh. us through this minefield <laughs> of different organizations. All right. Well, let's start with the Jenner Institute because uh, they start, you know, they they essentially develop this vaccine. So they were originally created in 1995 as um, a, pu- a public-private partnership between GlaxoSmithKline and the UK government. Uh, and then uh, in 2005, it was uh, moved, it was spun off, and it was relaunched. Adrian Hill uh, was placed in charge. GlaxoSmithKline was taken off, um, and it became a partnership between Oxford University and the Purbright Institute. Um, and since then, they've really tried to pres- position themselves as basically uh, the, the drivers of what vaccines are developed and what vaccine technologies are used to fight global pandemics. They've been doing this really ever since 2005, and they were actually really intimately involved in the 2014 Ebola crisis, the, um, where the vaccination effort there uh, mirrors what's happened with COVID-19 in, in remarkable ways. Um, actually, if you don't mind, there's a, a quote from The Guardian uh, from 2014 when that was going on, talking about a GlaxoSmithKline emergent biosolutions vaccine that the Jenner Institute was running the trials for, and they ran you know, that the trials were very rushed and controversial at the time. But the way they talk about this vaccine in The Guardian, they say this um, human trials of GlaxoSmithKline's experimental vaccine are to be fast-tracked with funding by an international consortium. Vaccines normally take 10 years to develop, but uh, GlaxoSmithKline said it says it hopes to finish the first phases of trials by the end of 2014, four months after this article was written. Uh, it will start making up to 10,000 doses of the vaccine at the same time as initial clinical trials. So if they prove successful, stock will be immediately available to high-risk communities. So that is basically almost word for word, you know, what we've heard about the marvel of the COVID-19 vaccination effort, but really this whole, uh, you know, situation in a lot of ways, including producing uh, tons of doses well before it's approved by any government. You know, all of that was uh, piloted in 2014, and it wasn't just GlaxoSmithKline and Emergent Biosolutions. It was also uh, the Fauci-led NIAID uh, that was intimately involved in this. And they also, in the case of Oxford-AstraZeneca's vaccine, 
have pumped $1 billion uh, into the production of this vaccine through BARDA. And actually, Fauci is one of the people that's promoted this idea that this is going to be an annual vaccination, which, of course, will allow VaxAttack and, you know, these uh, associated groups to to profit massively. So um, talking about these GlaxoSmithKline ties, that's where the Wellcome Trust becomes relevant, because the Wellcome Trust was originally fun, uh, created in 1936 with money from Henry Wellcome. And Henry Wellcome uh, founded the company that went on to be GlaxoSmithKline. So it's really the philanthropic arm, you could argue, of, of that particular uh, life sciences <laughs> pharmaceutical company. And, uh, okay, so I'm trying to get this all straight in my head. So uh, also there's the Oxford Vaccine Group. Is that a formal grouping? Yes. Yeah, so the Jenner Institute is part of the Oxford Vaccine Group. And uh, one thing I did forget to mention is that Adrian Hill, while heading the Jenner Institute, is also part of the UK Vaccines Network, which is part of the UK government and determines where UK government money will go to fund in terms of um, vaccine technologies and public health preparedness, which is pretty much all vaccines, and of course has put tons of money into the Jenner Institute itself and a lot of its associated uh, institutes and uh, you know uh, other uh, uh, partner companies and things like that. Right, and as you go on to elaborate in the article, Adrian Hill was the lead developer of this particular vaccine. But uh, there's an interesting tidbit in here that I hadn't seen before. That apparently Andrew Pollard, who works for the Jenner Institute and heads the Oxford Vaccine Group, quote, shared a taxi with a modeler who worked for the UK's Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, and during the taxi ride, the scientist told him data suggested that there was going to be a pandemic, not unlike the 1918 flu. This was apparently in January of 2020, and that's apparently why all this money was rushed into the development of this vaccine. And highly yes. unlikely story, but uh, interesting, and one wonders the name of that modeler and whether it rhymes with Beale Bergeson or something along those lines. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. What a crazy tidbit. Yeah, it's definitely really telling because they were months ahead of this vaccine uh, before it was even a declared global, you know, crisis. And, you know, remember back to January 2020, most people were, were you know, uh, talking about the Soleimani assassination and things like that. It wasn't really dominating attention. And they decide to start pouring millions upon millions of dollars courting money from, you know, investors and in different different groups like BARDA in the U.S. Uh, for this particular uh, vaccine for the coronavirus, because it was going to be like the 1918 flu according to this modeler tied with the SAGE group in the UK, which, uh, you know, uh, could have well been Neil Ferguson since he was the modeler of choice for that particular group at the time that argued for those lockdowns and is back again as sort of the architect behind uh, the creation of this new scary UK variant and things like that. So he definitely hasn't gone away uh, despite his controversies. Absolutely not, which is just ridiculous when you look at his track record. But anyway, uh, that's, I mean, that's pr probably part of the point. So let's let's get into Adrian Hill and his connections and how that perhaps ties into this bigger story of eugenics links. Sure. Well, um, Adrian Hill has an interesting history. Uh, his uh, thesis is uh, one of his early bosses, who was also his uh, thesis advisor when he was a doctoral student, is a man named David Weatherall. Uh, who runs the, or who was, a, um, I believe it's called the Weatherall Institute for Mole Mole Molecular Genetics or something to that effect. Um, and he was actually a member of the Galton Institute and has spoken there several times. Adrian Hill himself actually spoke at the 2008 Galton Institute 100-year anniversary celebrating 100 years of the Galton Institute, which is kind of interesting since the Galton Institute superficially anyway tries to distance themselves from their eugenics past that we can get into in a moment. So if you're going to celebrate their 100-year legacy and not just their legacy, 
legacy from their rebranding in 1989, I think that is honestly pretty telling. Um, and um, <clears throat> as far as the eugenics tie go, oh, well, sorry, uh, there's a little more I should say too. On the governance board of the Galton Institute, you have one woman who used to work directly under Adrian Hill at the Wellcome Center for Human Genetics, and I believe another person who also worked there. Uh, and that's also where the other co-developer of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, Sarah Gilbert, who's the co-founder um, of Vaxitech, was also connected to this Welcome Center for Human Genetics, where she was a program director. What's interesting about Adrian Hill is that he's been at that center, was involved with its founding, the Welcome Center for Human Genetics, for a very long time. There he is focused at the intersection of population genetics and race, particularly in Africa, um, doing various clinical trials there. They're currently doing clinic clinical trials on 4,000 800 children for their experimental malaria vaccine uh, that was announced in December 2020. They have a history at the Jenner Institute of doing these trials on children. Uh, and some of them have been really controversial with like several infants dying. I go in, in more detail into uh, about this in the, in the article. But um, the, the Welcome Center for Human Genetics also just more broadly focuses at this intersection of of race and suscept genetic susceptibility to diseases. Uh, and that's uh, Hill's specialty is genetic susceptibility of diseases to um, uh, for severe respiratory illnesses. And he focuses specifically in Africa, which is where most of the Welcome Center stuff is focused. Uh, the Welcome uh, Trust more broadly is also the archivist for the UK Eugenic Society, which is the Galton Institute. And they have a lot of very, um, uh, there's a lot of interconnected ties between them, but it's very telling, for example, when they opened their uh, archives on medical records at the Wellcome Trust, the first archive they sought to include in that uh, wasn't that of something like a, you know, a medical journal or something like that. It was, uh, you know, the Eugenic Society archives were what they wanted to archive first. And, you know, they describe the founder of eugenics, Francis Galton, um, not as a racist eugenicist, but a, uh, the imminent 19th century polymath and things like this, um, and, are, and are pretty, uh, you know, glowing in their description of, of the man and his uh, pseudoscience. So. And uh, another interesting tidbit that you go into here is just uh, in passing, you mentioned a scandal that the Welcome Sanger Institute specifically was involved in in Africa, <laughs> taking um, yeah. genetic information from Africans and finding a way to monetize that by creating gene chips that turned into sort of a minor scandal. And I, I, I must admit, I went down that rabbit hole looking for Welcome Sanger Institute. Why Sanger? It was founded by some, some guy named Solston. Why is it called the Sanger? I was thinking maybe Margaret, but no, apparently Fred yeah. Sanger. But anyway, um, yeah, an interesting little rabbit hole and just shows that, yes, these wonderful uh, institutions that are just out there for philanthropy are also busily commoditizing the literal genetic data of Africans in order to essentially sell it back to them uh, at profit. Surprise, surprise. Just another example of the profit motive at work. But a deeper agenda, as you say, that hopefully my listeners will be well-situated to already understand. If not, you could go back to episode 208 of the Corbett Report podcast on the Galton Institute Exposed, uh, where it revealed that the Galton Institute, what did it used to be called, Whitney? The Eugenic Society? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. The, the Eugenic Society, named after, of course, the founder of the Eugenics Pseudoscience, Francis Galton. And of course, there are continues to be Galtons involved in the Galton Institute to this day. It's almost a family project, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, it's pretty amazing. There are other groups beside that that are also, you know, tied to this uh, older uh, phase of the eugenics movement that have rebranded recently, like Engender Health being one that's partnered with the Gates Foundation. They used to be uh, be called, I believe, the Sterilization League for Human Betterment, and are now Engender Health um, and funding, you know, birth control in, uh, you know, developing nations in Africa and South Asia with the Gates Foundation. So this rebranding is something that's happened uh, to a big extent. But the Galton Institute is really interesting because historically it was very enmeshed with British and also American uh, elite circles. And it really continues to be that way to a big degree. I mean, even if you go and look at the governance, it's very well-placed professors and elite circles of academia in the UK. You have people from King College London, Imperial College, Oxford University, you know, the Welcome Centers, which are well-regarded and, and, and things like this, all, you know, all over its, its board. Even David J. Galton who teaches at a, at a prestigious university in London, uh, despite the fact that his most recent book is called Eugenics, the Future of Humanity for the 21st Century, where he talks about, uh, thanks to the Human Genome Project, we have so many tools for DNA manipulation that now we can uh, genetically edit people for their betterment, uh, even without them, you know, knowing and for their public health and all of this stuff. And you know, he's our, he uh, leaves it up to whether this should be compulsory by the state or left up to the individual. You know, I wonder what they'll choose. Um, and it's really interesting also that the Wellcome Trust actually recently funded a paper that essentially argued that as long as eugenics isn't coercive, it's acceptable policy. Um, so, I mean, this is something that these people still believe and they still advocate for. So the fact that this vaccine with these ties is being marketed specifically to developing countries, and that's the focus of these eugenicist-linked people's research for decades, I mean, uh, makes you kind of wonder, uh, and also the fact that they're getting this PR spin uh, on top of it, that they're, you know, the the good guys in the vaccine uh, campaign and all of this is really uh, sick when you, you know, actually figure out what's going on, so... I really hope some other uh, sites that have written to that effect will uh, reassess their conclusions, um, hopefully soon. One would certainly hope, given this information documentable, as you say, and one that really did jump out at me in that rebranding. I mean, I've seen a lot of crypto-eugenic rebranding uh, in my work looking at this, but in gender health, yes, as you say, the sterilization league for human betterment becomes engender health and it's funny actually i would invite people to go to the wikipedia article on engender health to look at the way that they deal with this issue and kind of bury it down yeah this used to be part of a eugenics thing but now it's totally different guys um it's it's the same thing every time and engender health with usaid uh, and the gates foundation working on rebranding uh, Norplant as Jadel, which is one of those right. long-acting uh, reversible contraceptives, aka birth control implants. In, yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we know uh, from the uh, Who Is Bill Gates documentary. Bill Gates personally was very interested in that idea, and also remote control, birth control technology, etc. So, as you say, there's no end to the links here. It, it, it's like a, a wheel with 8,000 different spokes and everyone ends up at some eugenics-linked organization. But what would you say to the critics who counter, well, this is just six degrees of Kevin Bacon? I mean, yeah, okay, there's a connection here or he taught under, or he taught someone who had a connection there, but there's no direct link of eugenicists to this vaccine, is there? 
Well, you know, in 1968, the president of the American Eugenics Society said something to the effect of, uh, in the future, eugenics goals will be accomplished by something under a name different than eugenics. You look at the people that were involved in eugenics society in the past, people that were still very influential and praised and loved by the state today, people like Winston Churchill, uh, Margaret Sanger, John Maynard Keynes, were all part of what what is now the Galton Institute. Uh, it's not, it's no, it's it's never been reviled in UK polite society. To to be a member of this organization. It was rebranded and now it's listed as a charity and that has been allowed to continue. And the academics that are on its governing boards and advocate for these ideas um, are in prominent places in academia rolled out as experts for things including COVID-19 vaccine policy. Um, so to think, you know, and, and, and if you continue to, you know, uh, look at something like the Welcome Trust, which is very, since its you know foundation, has pursued the same sort of policies, funded the same sort of things under different guises. You know, I I, I think it's um uh, their their continued interest in archiving the eugenic society, like there's uh, in in describing it in in you know neutral to positive terms, um is, is really alarming. And the fact that there was never accountability for this movement, it's been allowed. Uh, to change and, and rebrand, and that's the only way it could ever succeed, because obviously after World War II, uh, eugenics is not a popular uh, term anymore, and they were well aware of that and the need to go underground and, uh, you know, uh, rebrand this as for our benefit and to get people to accept it. But it's really telling that in the era of COVID-19 vaccination, we've seen this push of sort of what I would call uh, woke vaccine allocation policy, where they claim that this is needed to, uh, in the U.S. anyway, you know, to treat uh, systemic racism uh, and institutional racism by giving, you know, minorities the COVID-19 vaccine uh, first, but not giving them anything else, uh, not subsidizing their health care, not giving them stimulus checks, uh, anything like that. Just the vaccine is the only thing that will somehow uh uh, uh, absolve, uh, resolve longstanding problems, including police brutality. I mean, if you if you read the John Hopkins Center for Health Security uh, <laughs> COVID-19 vaccine policy document, I mean, they bring up the George Floyd protest as a reason to give African-Americans this vaccine first. Um, so when you look into the connections of, you know, their obsession with specifically African genetics at places like uh, the Jenner Institute and the Wellcome Trust, um, the fact that they're, you know, associated with these societies that have been part of the aristocracy in the U.S. and the U.K. for a very long time. Um, you know, I think it's 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 a very compelling case to be made. It definitely warrants scrutiny, if nothing else. Um, you know, uh, and, you know, beyond that, you also have the case of the uh, uh, in terms of vaccine allocation. They gave that in the U.S. the contract to Palantir, which is currently uh, predictive policing and locking up the very ethnic minorities that the COVID-19 vaccine is going to save. I mean, I mean, how many more pieces of evidence do you need? It's not like we're ever going to get affidavits from these people being like, yes, you have found us out. So when you're reporting on, you know, either intelligence or these more secretive, uh, you know, movements like, you know, the eugenics movement, you're, you're not going to get like the kind of, you know, concrete proof that some people expect. But I think there's definitely a compelling case to be made. Yes. And what you point out lines up so perfectly with what I've seen, for example, in my uh, research with the Gates Foundation and uh, the whistleblowers like Arata Koichi um, within the WHO malaria uh, department saying, look, the Gates Foundation is only interested in these medical pharmaceutical interventions, uh, expensive experimental technologies and other things, whereas just basic um, uh, tools that we could be using and focusing our efforts on are being neglected. I wonder why that is. I mean, why are they going after this route rather than that route? And that could definitely be one part of this. And as you say, there are two extremely dark 
uh, signs of all of this. One is that the Oxford AstraZeneca is being t- touted as the vaccine for the, the wider world and the, the poor sustainable de- uh, development kind of countries, the countries that need our help. So we'll help them with this vaccine in particular. That should raise some alarm bells. And then uh, uh, secondarily, uh, uh, what was the other part of the war? <laughs> dark ominous? Oh, yes. As you say, there's uh, everyone connected with this vaccine has been saying all along, oh, it looks like we're going to need one every year. It's not going to last very long. So we're going to have to make this an annual thing, um, which, again, should raise concerns. And on a deeper fundamental level, it, uh, what is happening right now is a precedent setting time, if they can get the precedent set that you are going to require one of these COVID-19 vaccines to participate in society, and oh, by the way, you'll need one every single year, then it doesn't even matter this one particular vaccine this one time. It could be the accumulation of vaccines over the years, or they could start changing the formula somewhere down the road. And that is the real danger here, the precedent that is being set. Can you speak to that? Uh, well, I think that sort of speaks to a, an ulterior motive, I sort of suspect here in, in Oxford, uh, in, in this case of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which is I suspect if they do make this annual, they'll insist that you keep getting the same brand of vaccine that you originally received early uh, every year because they haven't done any um, you know, studies in terms of the interactions of different COVID-19 vaccines with each other. So, for example, if you get a chimpanzee adenovirus vaccine like the Oxford one, you may not be able to get an mRNA vaccine the next year, et cetera, et cetera. And they've sort of implied this will be the case. So if Oxford and AstraZeneca ensure that they're given to the most people in terms of quantity the first year, even though they're not making that many royalties that year, then they ensure every year after that they get the largest market share in all subsequent COVID-19 vaccinations. So, you know, there's a lot of different angles to this annual um, COVID-19 uh, vaccine bit. But because of the in- introduction of this, of the variants, we've already seen people like Gates come out and say, well, now it needs to be up to three doses the year, a booster for all the variants after the initial two doses of the vaccine. So it's very possible in subsequent years, if a new scary variant comes up or or four or seven or whatever, you know, they can tack on as many um you know, doses is necessary to get your little green light on your future vaccine passport. So then it won't be the first two doses won't be enough anymore by 2022 or 2023. You'll have to have had, who knows, maybe five doses, maybe 10 doses. It really depends, but they really have us over a barrel. And the vaccine passport is one example, but they've been talking about people that are advising the Biden administration on COVID-19, for example, in the U.S. have talked about tying COVID-19 vaccination to state benefits. So if you want to continue receiving um, assistance for buying food from the state um, or some other sort of uh, form of of state assistance, you will have to show proof of COVID-19 vaccination and things like that, uh, which they're discussing uh, about doing if not a large enough percentage of the U.S. uh, voluntarily decides to take the vaccine. They'll keep it voluntary, but they're they're definitely going to try and make it uh, a much more sellable case for voluntary in terms of trying to force really the most vulnerable people that may not want that may be vaccine hesitant or not interested in getting the vaccine for a variety of reasons, you know, sort of forcing them to get it um, if they want to continue uh, subsisting in a very dire economic environment. Okay, Whitney, as you know, in 2021, I am decreasingly interested, actually aggressively uninterested in simply documenting the bad things that are going on. I am extremely interested in what we can do with this information in a positive sense. So after people do read your article, digest the information, follow the links, find out more about what is happening, what is it that people can actually do with this information? 
Well, in the case of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine article, I think it's just really important to share it around as much as possible. And that includes just not, you know, using legacy social media. I think we need to move away from that. Email it to your friends, your contacts, maybe print off a copy and leave it somewhere. I don't know. We need to get more creative about how we're spreading information in the increased censorship um, environment because um, things like this, there isn't going to be any change until more people are, are aware of the facts in this particular case. So I would really hope that, you know, uh, you may not get mainstream media to change their reporting on AstraZeneca, but if you share this article enough, perhaps you'll get independent media uh, to change their reporting. And that is a start. Um, but in a related case, there is there are some people with connections to the story that we've been talking about, including uh, this new uh, cabinet level science czar for Biden, uh, Eric Lander, who was also tied to the Human Genome Project and has some connections uh, into this, was also uh, not only has ties to eugenicist figures like uh, James uh, Watson um, and people like that, but also was funded by Jeffrey Epstein, and he's about to face Senate confirmation. Uh, so I think you know if people want to. Um, help affect, you know, some sort of change. It may not happen, but definitely pressuring the people um, online that'll be part of that Senate hearing to have them ask about the ties to Epstein or ask about his ties to Watson, which actually had him, you know, face a lot of criticism back in 2018, relatively recently, um, from people who are now praising his appointment in the Biden administration, ironically enough. Uh, you know, but uh, there are these eugenicist leak figures that are out there that they're trying to elevate to positions and a Senate confirmation hearing um, is a good opportunity uh, to raise awareness about that link in particular before it takes place. So there can be public pressure, especially with the Epstein tie. I mean, really, the top science guy that Biden's going to put in was a guy that Jeffrey Epstein bragged about funding and who's pictured meeting with him. Um, you know, I mean, I think we can do better than that. So um you know, those are just some examples, but obviously, you know, people need to be as creative as possible. And unfortunately, uh, with the Oxford case, it's not, uh, I can't really think of any, you know, direct actions example examples that are necessarily legal. So I won't mm. um, expound on those, right? So well, um, you, you raise a couple of really important points, one of which is that nothing, absolutely nothing of this agenda will be derailed until general public awareness is raised and people actually understand why they should care about this issue. And I know my audience is well well attuned to these issues and probably already understands, but of course, we all know hundreds, of, if not thousands of people that have no idea about any of this or why they should care. So absolutely, raising awareness of these issues is still critical, crucial. And as you also point out, the information war that is taking place right now is, is a guerrilla war. Uh, we, we, I mean, we've enjoyed the ability to disseminate this information on the controlled social media platforms up to this point, but that is ending. And on that note, I will draw people's attention specifically to Google Ventures, which is one of the players that stands to profit from this Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, even as Google, aka YouTube, of course, scrubs this information from their platform. And I, I'm going to make a bold prediction. I'm going to try to post this to YouTube. I guarantee this video will be taken down. Luckily, my my, my already aware audience will know not to follow me on YouTube and not to expect my work to appear there because this this video will be taken down. But talk a little bit about the Google Ventures connection and what that uh, pretends for the way that we can get this information out there. Well, uh, you know, the Google Ventures profit motive is a huge conflict of interest from Google. And if you want to raise awareness about, about something, uh, you know, that's definitely a clear conflict of interest. And Google should really be held accountable for that in terms of their COVID-19 
you know, misinformation policy because no one, ha I haven't seen anything else except for uh, my article talk about Google's tie to the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, which I find uh, honestly pretty alarming because you would want to know since they control such a, not, not just through YouTube, but also through search, you know, they, they control how people access information in a huge way. So the fact that they, um, you know, are invested in this vaccine and are trying to prevent critical reporting on it from reaching people um, is obviously alarming. And so anyone that is, you know, on the bandwagon now for whatever motive of uh, being concerned or uh, uh, raising awareness about Silicon Valley and their censorship uh, efforts, you know, this is definitely one key example that I think should be uh, promoted a lot more. Well, given that this information is being systematically scrubbed from all of the main social media networks, what are the best ways for people to follow your work? All right. So currently I have a channel on Telegram where I post all of my content so you can find it on there. Um, but I, I honestly think that we're going to be in a situation uh, in independent media where it comes hopping from platform to platform as they try and pull different sites or apps out by the roots, whether taking them from the app stores on smartphones or like what happened to, to the social platform uh, Gab a few uh, years ago where they took it, they just took the domain out. We're going to have to get creative. So um, reliably find my work at unlimitedhangout.com. Um, also, I post multimedia content for my site to Rockfin, uh, which uh, a couple different uh, content creators that some of your audience may know um, are, are currently there as well. So um, I have a podcast that uh, is on there and a, a, a one video series called Dump Davos on the World Economic Forum uh, that we just started as well as uh, another one we hope to be uh, starting up in the next couple of weeks. Um, and uh, if you're interested in supporting my work, you can subscribe to my channel on Rockfin or you can also uh, sign up for my Patreon. But Patreon is about to um, de-platform uh, uh, my... Uh, <laughs> uh, um, partner in crime, Ryan Christian. Uh, so, you know, Patreon's days seem to be numbered uh, to that in that regard. So uh, probably best to try Rockfin in that case, but, you know, we'll see what happens. As you say, I think there will be uh, a lot of tumult in the coming years in terms of jumping from platform to platform. But as I say, I will be linking unlimitedhangout.com and the article and the other things we've talked about today so people can find that directly. Whitney Webb, thank you for the work and thank you for coming on to just talk about it today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks, James.